On chapter two uh, this morning, going through the book of Ephesians, just a fast recap of what took place in, in uh, chapter one is there was a, a, a passage, and it, a passage that, a verse that drives the entire book, but it really drove this last chapter. And it's, it's found in Ephesians 1, 3. It says, blessed be the God of our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Has blessed is past tense, meaning I own those blessings now. And that verse says that they are spiritual blessings. And a couple weeks ago, remember what spiritual means? That whenever somebody says spiritual, you better brace for impact because something big is going to take place. When you say the husband is a spiritual, uh, the spiritual um, part of the family, then, then uh, the spiritual influence of the spiritual leader of the family, you're saying that you better brace for impact because he's the one that's going to carry the weight that's going to drive the family forward in a spiritual way, which means a strong way, which means a powerful way. When somebody says, you know, I had a spiritual experience, you, you better brace for impact. The reason why is because they had an experience that look out, what are they going to say next? That word carries a lot of weight. And so we have these spiritual blessings, already own them, and then what does Paul give us? He gives us a download of the gospel message. Here's your spiritual blessings. You are chosen, you are adopted, you are redeemed, you have wisdom and insight, and you are sealed the powerful gospel that we take, that we swallow, that we believe in, that changes us, that moves us, that drives us, and that sends us. But there's something about this gospel that is mentioned in, uh, in the first chapter that's different than the second chapter. The gospel that is mentioned in the first chapter is the gospel from God's perspective. In other words, this is God looking down on us and saying, hey, let me explain this gospel from my perspective. You are chosen, I chose you. You are adopted, I adopted you. You are redeemed, I'm the one that done that. I've given you wisdom, I've given you insight. It's It's from God's perspective. The gospel given to us in chapter two is from our perspective. It's the way that we can see it. And it's how we can observe it. Now, the Bible does this uh, numerous times. In fact, another time um, it takes place is in the Gospels. If you look at the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, what are they about? They're about the life of Jesus. And they explain what happened in the life of Jesus. But what perspective are they speaking from? They're speaking from a perspective that's on earth. In fact, they're account, making an account of what is taking place in Jesus' life on earth. And so it's from the human perspective. That's the way that it was written in that category. But then John is not necessarily written from a human perspective. It's more written from God's perspective. For instance, you get the Christmas story that takes place. You've got shepherds, you've got stars, you've got everything that takes place on the story in Matthew and then also Luke. But then John gives a Christmas story, and what does he say? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, the Word was with God in the beginning, and then the Word became flesh. (laughs) That's like, what kind of Christmas story is that? Well, that's a Christmas story from God's perspective. This is the way I'm looking down and giving it from his perspective. So that is what's taking place in chapter one, giving us the gospel from God's perspective. In chapter two, we're getting the gospel from our perspective. So let's look at the gospel from our perspective, and we're going to spend two weeks on it. And uh, so, because we're going to give you the whole thing right now, and the reason why we're going to give you the whole thing is because this all comes in a compact uh, statement of what this beautiful gospel looks like, and we broke it up. What are we saved from? 
what are we saved by, and what are we saved for, and then we're going to read it, work on it this week, and then also work on it next week as well. Let's read it and go through it. And you were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the, <clears throat> the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, which he loved us, even though we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved." and raised us up in him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that nobody can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So let's just break this up. What we are saved from, number one. We are saved from the grip of sin slash death. Those two words go together. Sin slash death. The most horrific word in our English dictionary is the word death. And sin comes along with it. I mean, have you ever seen what death does to a body? No, we don't see it very often unless it's in movies because the reason why is we put the body in the ground pretty fast because we really don't want to look at what death does to a body because it's absolutely horrific. Uh, Last month, um, I was out of town and whenever I'm out of town, something always takes place with my cows. It's just the way it is. They either get out, they bug the neighbors, something happens, I go to Africa, they die. I mean, that's just what takes place, it seems like. So I was out of town and our calf had babies. And when they had babies, they had twins. One of the twins lived, the other one died. So what happens, they called me up and said, you guys just had twins, and, and one's laying on the ground, and it doesn't look like it's alive. I said, well, go check on it. They checked on it, my daughters checked on it. They said, okay, it's, it's dead. I said, well, just leave it there for a couple days. I'll be back, and then I'll put it in the ground. Didn't want them to have to deal with it. So sure enough, I came back two days later, and I took the calf, and took it back where all the coyotes were, and then we buried them, and, and, uh, and called it good. Had a little memorial service and those things, but you won't get into that. The cow resurfaced <laughs> last week. That's the nicest way I can say it. But it resurfaced, and I want to get into the details of how it resurfaced, but it needed to be buried again. We'll put it that way. So sure enough, I, I wrapped a rope around the head, and I took it to a different spot by dragging it with a quad across the yard, and, and I put it down next to me, and then I started digging a grave. That was the first mistake. If you have a cow that's been dead for a little over a month, don't put it right next to you when you dig to the grave because you'll dry heave in the process of digging the grave. And and that's where I was kind of at in the process. So for 30 minutes, I was digging this grave, almost dry heaving, wasn't quite. It was an absolutely disgusting experience. And then what I did is I ended up putting the cow in the grave, hopefully for the last time, and it's been completely and entirely done. Death is the most horrific word, but it's a word we often don't like thinking about, bringing up, and we often even want to water it down. Forrest Gump, hear the movie 
death is just part of living for us. It's just, just what we do. It's just, it's just, just natural. There's nothing natural about that calf in, in my mind. Or you hear the song, just a circle of life in the Lion King. Just relax. We're just going to walk through this circle of life and everything is going to be wonderful. Yes, we live, but then we die. It's a circle in life and when we talk about it, we break into song. You know, personally, if you believe that death is not horrific, I'd sure like to take you to my house for a field trip and let you look. I'll dig that calf back up, let you look at it and say, well, this is just a wonderful circle of life that we're dealing with right here. No, it's, it's horrific. It's disgusting. It's rancid. And there's reasons for it. There's reasons why it carries that. Here's one reason is that our eternal state is worth it, worse than any body dead body could ever look. Our eternal state of not knowing Jesus Christ is worse than any deteriorating body would all look at, would we ever look at. And so death is just a, a glimpse of the doom that is, is our, that is coming our way if we don't know Jesus. Death is just a glimpse of the doom that is coming our way if we don't know Jesus. We're supposed to look at death and respond to death and say, oh my goodness, I need a savior. I need to be redeemed from this. I need to be rescued from this. I need this not to happen even to me. It's a horrific thing. I think God, when he put the consequences of sin as death, said, I will make it a horrific thing so you guys will open your eyes and to see where all of us are going to. The other reason why I think God made it horrific is because if death is the most horrific thing that could ever take place to anything, that means the resurrection is the most powerful, majestic, glorious, and astonishing thing that we could ever see. It means the resurrection is the most glorious, majestic, astonishing thing that we could ever see. When I looked at the cow, and the cow is not gonna rise again, but I just want you to think of a human body, that cow was completely mangled, disgusting, no life, but annihilated in the process. The word of God does not talk about reincarnation. In other words, he is not gonna recreate our body. He is going to do what? He's gonna resurrect our, our body. Meaning, I'm gonna put that back together. It's the tip of the sword of the word of God. So death was literally painted in the horrific state for the purpose of the glory of God coming in, bringing salvation to see his power, to see his majesty, to see his glory, live in a world that we want to take death and just put it aside. We want to take sin, just put it aside. We want to minimize it. Paul is not wanting to minimize it in this passage. He says this, and you were dead in your trespasses and sin. He does not say that you are sick in your sin because it just takes a pill to make you sick. It takes your effort to go home and eat better. It takes your effort to get sleep. It takes your effort in this, this, this getting better if you're sick. He literally says, you're dead. As ugly as it is, you are dead and you need a resurrection. You need a resurrection. Number two, we're saved from the grip of the world. We're not only saved from sin and death. We're saved from the grip of the world. Isaac Ambrose said these words, the world hates them that love it, deceives them that trust it, afflicts them that serve it, reproaches them that honor it, and ruins them that follow it. 
In other words, it will never fill you up. It will never quench your thirst. It will never satisfy you. It will always turn you into a victim, no matter how much of it you eat. If you take the whole world and swallow every single piece of wealth, every single piece of desire, everything that it has, it would do nothing but make you into a victim. And if you watch the news or even watch TV, you see it taking place. Where the rich, the strong, the famous, and the powerful are miserable. Are miserable. Are, are victims. In fact, if you look at most everybody on the planet, it seems like we're all, we're all victims. We're all victims because we're swallowing this world that just does not do it for us. But yet it has a grip on us. But the grip does nothing more than just take us down. It's like eating snow. I climbed Mount Hood, and when you climb Mount Hood, or climb any mountain where there's a lot of snow, um, it's like walking into a desert. It's like, what do you mean you walk in the desert? You're literally walking on water. But no, snow is extremely dry. And uh, if you melt it, yes, it turns into water, but it's extremely dry. And the instructions you get when you mountaineer is that you do not eat the snow. And the reason why you do not eat the snow is because it takes all the saliva out of your mouth. It takes more saliva out of your mouth than it gives you water to fill you up. It's exactly what the world does. Well, it's water. It's got to be water. You take it in, you take it in, you take it in, and you get more dehydrated, more dehydrated, and more dehydrated, and there's a grip that's on us. It's a grip of the world. Here in Ephesians 2, Paul mentions it. He says that, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. As you're following the course of this world, you're in chains. You're in chains. It won't give you life. No matter what takes it place, won't, no matter what takes place, it won't give you life. Number three, we're saved from the grip of Satan. We are saved from death that eats us, from the world that ruins us, and we haven't even gotten to Satan yet. But Paul's going to get to Satan. He's going to get to Satan right here in this passage. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Satan is a prince specifically with power. He has power to manifest evil through influencing people and commanding his demons to go after us, and he pursues us like a hungry lion that wants to devour us. We've got some enemies. We've got some things that are after us. We need a savior. And what Paul's doing with this gospel message, he's saying, open your eyes to see what's after you. You have sin, you have death, you have the world, and you have Satan that is all coming after you. You definitely need a savior. I think we know where Paul's going. The other thing that we need is we need to be saved from the grip of flesh. I don't know about you, and probably you don't know what I'm talking about, but I always eat the wrong thing. I always want to eat the wrong thing. I mean, whenever there's a potluck, I look at the desserts more, with more desire than I look at the healthy food. And if there is healthy food, I don't, even, I, don't, I don't even hardly put it on my plate. I always want to eat the wrong thing, and I always pay for it. In the long run, pay for it from my stomach being sick or pay for it from growing on my waist. I always want to eat the wrong thing. It's interesting that it's inside of me and, you know, it seems like I always want to do the wrong thing too. I always just, just want to do the wrong thing. It's just a, an attraction to, to do the wrong thing. Martin Luther says, I'm more afraid of my flesh than I am of Satan. 
because my flesh has got a grip on me. It wants to go a direction. And I thank God that he has allowed him to come in. I thank God for saving me, coming into my life, that I would be saved even literally from my flesh. Because if my flesh had to run its course, I'd tell you I would doom myself. Literally doom myself. Ephesians 2 says, among them who all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. Flesh is the external part of religion, according to the Bible. What I mean by that is that we all want to be happy, we all want to be filled up, and we all want to be strengthened, we all want to be anointed, we all want to be beautiful. We have all these desires in us, and religion is the only way that we'll find that freedom. Two different religions out there. The flesh that's on the outside, or the spirit that is even on the inside. Flesh is strong, powerful piece of religion. Why, because the inner core of us want to be happy, filled up and strengthened, and we use the world to do it because we desire it so, so bad. We're also saved from the wrath of God. Again, just to review what Paul is saying, wake up people, you have death that wants to eat us, we have the world that wants to ruin us. We have Satan that wants to destroy us. We have your flesh that wants to use you. And then you also have God's wrath wants to unleash on you. Ephesians 2.1, and we are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Do we need to be saved? Paul's trying to tell you you do. <laughs> Paul is trying to tell you you do. And with a very aggressive passage, you just literally got the entire doctrine of even sin just in those first four verses that were even given to us, those first uh, three verses that were given to us. The entire doctrine of everything we need to be saved from is just right there. Paul is saying, open your eyes. You need to be saved. And so many people in the world, they don't even know it. Paul is saying, you need it. What are we saved by? What are we saved by? We're going to get that in this passage. Number six, we're saved by his grace. We need a savior, but what are we saved by? Saved by his grace. Rafted the Rogue River um, at flood stage, meaning that I shouldn't have been on the river because when you raft it at flood stage, it can get pretty wild, pretty hairy, and pretty scary. And, and in the Rogue River, there's some canyons that get really, really narrow. And when the canyons get narrow, what happens, the water just starts to boil inside of these canyons. And uh, it, it's very strong water. They call it, you know, it's like hydraulic water. And so if you have a life jacket on, it doesn't mean that you're going to stay afloat. It means that you're going to get taken advantage of that water and it will still suck you. It will pull you. It will pull you down. And uh, sure enough, we were going over one rapid and we were about ready to flip. And I was on the bottom side and they had two other guys at the top side. The raft was ready to go over. And I knew that if I went out, that the raft would pop back and would not flip. So I just, I went out and then the boat did not flip. But the two guys that were in there didn't know what to do. They just looked at me and go, now what do we do? <laughs> and, and, uh, um, and I said, well, pick me up. But they, you know, they didn't know how to you know, necessarily pick me up you know, right away. And I looked down, and then it's starting to move right into a narrow canyon uh, with, with pretty strong water that was moving into the narrow canyon. And I'm like, oh, boy, they're not going to get me in time. I said, just get away from me. I'll just try to see if I can survive this. And so I started floating with life jacket on. As soon as I hit that hydraulic water, it just sucked me as if I didn't even have a life jacket on. 
Now, with a life jacket, you will pop back up again, but I wasn't popping up. And I kept going down and down and down and down. I'm like, am I going to hit the bottom? And I tell you, it was extremely, extremely deep. And then your mind goes, you know, I need air. But you constantly say, don't panic, don't panic, don't panic, don't panic, don't panic, as I just kept getting sucked into this, this black hole. I don't, it wasn't a good feeling. <laughs> I wasn't, it wasn't necessarily enjoying myself. I wanted out. And the way I wanted out is I wanted air at the top. And I wondered if I was going to get it. But I'll tell you, just to finish this story, my life jacket did get me to the surface. I got my air and I lived, just to let you know the story. But I just want to give you the, the feeling of what goes on. The desperateness of wanting to be rescued. I always look at that picture and I think about death. And when I'm walking into a black hole, there is nobody that's around. There is nobody that is there. It is dark, it is lonely, it is horrific, and you don't know what's at the bottom. And when you get to the bottom, that's the time that's like, okay, it's all over. But look at it from a different perspective. Look at that God who brought salvation to you. Just think about me walking through the corridors of death, going into a black hole, a lost hole, dark, lonely. If I was a believer, and I didn't get back up to the surface, do you know what the bottom would look like? It'd just open up into a beautiful ray of glory. That's what the bottom would look like. Because I wouldn't have made it. But I only traveled through the dark for the purpose of opening up to the bottom of glory. So I did make it to the top, a different sense of air, but you just got the ugliness in the middle. Here you have the most encouraging words in the entire Bible. We are dead in our sins, but then you hear this in verse 4. But God, but God, I am lost and I'm dead, but God. Here I am in the middle of the water thinking, this is not going to work for me. But God, most beautiful verse, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ, by grace, you have been saved. At the very top, he just told us that we are the biggest losers in the entire world. In fact, we are dead, we are lost, we are owned, we are ruined, we are being destroyed, and then all of a sudden in one verse, but God, being rich in mercy, made us who were dead alive. Made us who were dead Alive, And then we ask the question, what did he do it with? And at the very end, he says, by grace, you have been saved. What is this word grace? Now, next week, we're going to talk at length about this word grace. But just really fast, what is this word grace? It's just an alignment of a gift. But whenever you just say grace is a gift, it doesn't do it any justice. Maybe because there's lots of gifts that are out there. In other words, if somebody uh, went by and um, uh, saw my mailbox and they opened up my mailbox and they saw the mail that was in it and they saw a bill, they grabbed a hold of the bill, they left everything else and they took off and then they called me and said, hey, Mike, I just want you to know that I stole a bill from your mailbox and I paid it. <laughs> I, I would say, thank you. What one was it? <laughs> the, the reason why is because I need to know the level of thank you that I need to give them. And they, they, they would say, well, you know what it was? It was, it was the electric bill. I'm like, oh, 
thank you. I mean, that would, that would grant a letter. That would grant a note. That would grant, I just want to say thank you for paying this electric bill. But what if it was the mortgage bill? <laughs> it would grant a little bit more than a note, don't you think? You just paid my mortgage? That's going to alter my life. That's going to that's change me. In fact, I'm not only going to write you a letter. What do I owe you? <laughs> you, you, want to be a, you want a good friend? I'll be your best friend. I mean, it, you're going to pull towards that person because of the magnitude of the gift that was given. So when I use the word grace, we can, oh yeah, grace is, is a gift. Well, here's a gift. Jesus said, I will take your death and you can take my life. I'll take the death that you earned and the death that you deserve and you take my life. I will take your sin and you take my righteousness. I will take your hell and you take my heaven. Jesus didn't go to hell. At the cross, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was rejected by his God, so I would not be. He was rejected by his God, so I would not be. Grace carries a lot more power than, ah, just, just, just a gift. Grace is the process of paying the price that is deserved for me, and the person that shouldn't have paid the price paid the price and then granted it to me. Grace does three different things. Letter A, grace always is costly to a giver. It's not just a gift. The giver has to pay. Let's just kind of put it in modern perspective. Say somebody robbed my house. That person robbed my house and then they got caught. Um, They went to court. Well, I am the victim of my house being robbed, so I show up to court for the purpose of watching that person receive justice for the result of my house being robbed, because I'm the victim, of course. So he gets justice. He gets five years, 11 months. Measure 11 cannot get out. That's what he gets for robbing my house. But after he gets it, I raise my hand and say, whoa, 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 whoa a second. Thank you for justice that was given. I just want you to know that I will take his justice. In other words, I will do his five years and 11 months so he can now go free. And it's like, well, hold on a second. Aren't you the victim through this process? Yeah, I am the victim through this process, but don't worry. I love that person. I love that person so much that even though I am the victim, a victim in this process, I will even pay the price in this process. Well, here we have, you're a sinner. You rob God of your glory every time we sin. We just rob God of his glory. That's what we do. We rob him of his glory. And what do we get in the process of robbing God of his glory? We get death, but yet Christ takes our death. (laughs) That's crazy. That's, that's grace, price that was paid. It's always costly to the giver. And when it comes to grace, and that word even being mentioned in the word of grace, you see all the headlines of what, we're dead in our sin, we're, you know, we're, we're ruled by the world, we're, we're controlled by Satan. You see all this garbage that is taking place. Grace in the center of this verse is saying, you see all that garbage, I'll pay the price and I'll annihilate all that garbage that should destroy you and I'll move it right to the cross for the purpose of making you alive. It is always costly to the giver. There's something else about grace. It's always shocking to an observer. <laughs> if somebody is watching grace take place, the observers are like, what in the world just happened? It's not just a gift. It's like, whoa, what happened? Do you mean somebody got robbed 
And after he got robbed, he went to court because he wants justice, and then he takes justice on his shoulders and then lets the prisoner loose? I mean, the whole court would be shocked if that ever took place. It's always shocking to a giver, but the whole, I would say, court in the heavenly realms is literally shocked at what God did for you. In fact, we're going to talk about this in a couple of weeks. Because in chapter 3, it just says the manifold wisdom of God was actually completely exposed. And all the angels are looking and said, what in the world just happened? Our God that we worshipped just died for them. <laughs> it's just completely shocking to an observer that watches grace ever happen. The other thing is it's very traumatic to the receiver. We understand the fullness of grace it carries an impact. It carries a major impact. And if it does not carry an impact, then we don't know the state that we're in. Paul tries to explain it to us. You are dead in your sin. The world wants to rule you. Satan wants to own you. You are absolutely a mess. Paul's trying to explain to us, but we don't understand the state we're in, therefore grace doesn't carry the weight. We don't understand the state we're in, so the cross doesn't look like it's supposed to look to us. Paul's trying to explain it. Open up your eyes to the state you're in and open up the eyes to the grace that was granted to you, the price that was paid, that was costly to a giver, shocking to all the heavenly realms that observe it, and does it bring a traumatic impact on you? That's what God wants it to do. Bring a traumatic impact onto you. What are we saved for? Others ask the question, why did God do it? <clears throat> why did God do it? Why does this grace, this, this, this amazing amount of grace, be showered on us? Why did he do it? Well, Paul is giving you the whole theology of the salvation message, so he's going to answer that question right here. This is why I did it. Number seven, we are saved for the glory of God. I did it all, specifically, for the glory of God. Yesterday we had a funeral service and one that we never really want to have. In other words, a 16-year-old passed away. And um, one of our um, daughter churches, a pastor of our daughter churches, it was his daughter that ended up passing away. So we know them, um, we know them very, very good. And and she, um, she died of a blood clot that went to her heart and, um, and then had a massive heart attack and then passed away right next to her dad um, in Target. And it was an instant death that ended up taking place. This whole room was completely full of people, completely packed out yesterday as we celebrated Aaliyah's life. There was a tone that was in the, that was in the room. And it was a tone that was given um, by the family. When I talked to the family on Thursday, you know, we talked about, okay, let's put the service together and let's, let's you know, put everything, all the bones together. You need somebody who's going to do an introduction. You need somebody who's going to do eulogy. You need, you know, the video and you also need, um, you know, a preacher at the end. And, and uh, I was thinking I was probably going to end up with the introduction, but Brad Ills, which is the father of the daughter who died, um, was telling me the story about his daughter. And as he was telling me the story about his daughter, I said, Brad, I won't tell anybody this, but I'm going to tell you it because I know you, I love you, and um, I'm just going to say it, and you can tell me what for if you want to. I said, you need to get up there, and you need to get the introduction to your daughter. 
And he didn't make the statement of who she is. And so he did come up and he did make a statement. He made the statement from the bottom of his heart. And inside of it, he didn't even say these words, but just, I am so glad my daughter is saved. <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't about even death that we're talking about. He says, I'm all right right now. In 15 minutes, I'll probably be crying like crazy. I just want you to know this. But there's something I'm hanging on to. I am so glad my daughter is saved. I am glad she loved Jesus, and I'm glad that she wanted everybody on this planet to know Jesus. And therefore, since she wanted that in her life, in her death, I'm going to tell you what she wants. She wants everybody in this room to know Jesus. That was the power of the sermon. And God was getting all the glory. And we were getting all the peace that we need under this one word, which is grace. God was getting the glory, and we were getting the peace. Aaliyah's life shined the message, and her death proclaimed the message that the world so desperately needs. That glory that God has handed grace to the human being is exactly what the message needs. And that is exactly why we are saved. We are saved for that touch of glory for the purpose of giving it to the world. Ephesians 2 says this, and raised us up, which means and God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Grace is a revelation of love for the purpose of praise and glorifying God. That was the tone of the message. I want to give you a proclamation, a revelation of love, and grace is it, and salvation was hers, and as a result of salvation is hers, one day we'll be able to see her again, not because of what she has done, but because of what God has done. Give him the praise and give him the glory because that is what we're going to worship. What do I mean that's what we're going to worship? Look at verse 7. So that in the coming ages, the coming ages is not now. It's not in our time frame. It is after we die. The coming ages is when we enter into glory. In the coming ages, he might show, God might show what? The measurable riches of what? Grace. What does that mean? That means for an eternity. Do you know what we're going to ask Jesus for? <laughs> let me see your nail-scarred hands. We're going to say, Jesus, let me, let me look back at who you are. Because when the cross came, it proclaimed who Jesus was. And when we're in heaven and we're giving him praise and we're going to give him glory, we're going to be thinking, oh, I want to see you again, God. I want to see you again. In fact, I want to worship you. I want to sing your glory. I want to sing your praise. But we're not going to sing his glory and sing his praise because he's just this majestic, huge thing in this world. But we're going to see it, sing his glory and sing his praise because his heart is golden. His heart is full of love. His heart, according to this verse, is full of kindness. His heart is full of compassion. He's given us grace and we'll praise him for an eternity because he's given us the word grace. Why are we saved? We are saved for the glory of God. God says, I am going to have glory in my redemptive plan for mankind, and the angels will praise me, and mankind will praise me for eternity as a result. 
The other reason why we're saved, number eight, we are saved to proclaim the glory of God through our good works. We are not saved by our good works. We are saved for our good works. Because when my works come out, what am I doing? I'm screaming the glory of God. I have been saved by grace, and this is the impact, this is the result of what has happened to me. I'm saved by grace, and this is the result, this is the impact of what has happened to me. I sing his praises with my mouth. I'm now going to sing his praises with my life, and I want the whole world to know that he exists, and that he is alive, and that he paid my price. I want the whole world to know that, because I want the whole world to sing God's glory. So when it comes to works, it's not like, oh, I'm a Christian now. What do I need to do? Grace carries an impact that's so deep, that is so strong, it's like, what in the world did God just do for me? He did it to proclaim his glory, and he also did it so I would proclaim his glory through my life. Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God. He wants to make it very clear that it's not you that brings salvation at all. You absolutely didn't do nothing. It's not, you say it again, not a result of works. So don't brag about it. Don't boast about it. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for the good works, for the purpose of good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There's people out there that are lukewarm in their Christian walk. There's people out there that are just completely cold in their Christian walk. There's people out there that are hot in their Christian walk, on fire in their Christian walk. There's one word that sets the fire, or there's one word that is not understood, therefore it moves somebody to lukewarm or to somebody even cold, and the word is grace. Paul is making a huge statement. Death wants to eat you. The world wants to ruin you. Satan wants to destroy us. My flesh wants to use us. God's wrath is going to unleash us. But God and his rich in mercy are saved. But by grace you have been saved through faith. And you have been saved through faith for the purpose of shouting the grace to the world and worshiping him in the process. That's how it works. That's the salvation message that has been granted specifically to us. So if it's been granted to us, our job now is to let it come out of us. Our job now is to let it come out of us. We're doing, a, doing some baptisms during Easter. And uh, baptism services are the most awesome services that are out there. And the reason why is because I'm not behind the pulpit. Somebody else is behind the pulpit. And with that person that comes up here that's going to get baptized, he gives a testimony. And do you know what that means? Or she gives a testimony. Do you know what that means? It means this is the impact that God has, on my, has had on my life. And you know what you usually get? I was once lost, but now I'm found. And then they move up to the water and say, this is the reason why I live. Put into the grave and raise again. It's all because of Jesus. It's a statement to God's glory. It's a statement that we have to give because it's been granted specifically to us. God, we just thank you for your amazing grace. God, we didn't earn it, we don't deserve it, and we shouldn't have it, but yet it's been granted to us. 
God, I just pray if there's anybody in this room that has not received it, that they were open to their eyes, their need for it, that they would see the state that they're in and call out to you and ask to be saved. I pray for those of us who have received this amazing grace that uh, it would shock us. It would shock us so deep to the core that we would exist to proclaim your glory as a result of what you have done for us. We just pray, God, for your spirit to have impact on our life, knowing that this grace has the power to impact it. We love you in Christ's name. Amen.